Well, hello everyone and welcome to another Speaking Of. Hi, Sarah, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing really well, Jane. You know, I've been looking forward to our topic for today, Reasons for Hope, um, in part because I always feel like April, which is Earth Month, is a really great time to take stock of climate action, you know, all those great calls to action and renewing our commitment to move things forward. But I also think it's a great time of year to take stock of where progress is being made and celebrate those successes. I'm with you. I've really been looking forward to this conversation too. Before we dive in, let's do some of our usual housekeeping. So for those of you joining us today and new to speaking of, welcome. For those of you that are returning, welcome to you as well. Uh, we've got, you know, the speaking of conversation, we've been doing this for the last few months and really it's meant to be casual, informative and interactive. So you really won't see any slides or, you know, or any slides or charts, I promise. Um, instead, it's really meant to be an open discussion in which there will be plenty of opportunity for you to take part in that conversation today as well. That's right. And, you know, we also want to know, like, with everyone else who does anything on Zoom, we have had some tech issues along the way. But speaking of hope, we're feeling a little hopeful that we've gotten them ironed out. Uh, last time went really smoothly for us. And if I just jinxed us saying that and one of us freezes or cuts out, uh, just know that we'll be right back on the call. And uh, Jane and I will continue working toward a solution. Yeah. That was great, Sarah. Working towards solutions. I think that's kind of actually the theme of today. And in fact, it's a little unusual for us. So normally in these conversations, we've really focused on the nuts and bolts technology. So things like electric vehicles, like what we did last month, or how does recycling get sorted that we did in February. Uh, but as you and I have talked about many, many times, hope is also a tool for fighting climate change. And unfortunately, it's one that oftentimes gets overlooked. Uh, there's no question that the climate crisis can be daunting. And of course, it is important to realize the seriousness of the situation that we're in. But to take action, we also need to have that sense of hope uh, that what we're doing really matters and can actually make a difference. Yeah, that is so true. In fact, one of the ideas that you see pop up in climate change discussions now is that doom is the new denial. And what people mean when they say that is that whereas, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, it was common to hear detractors say, you know, climate change isn't real or it's a bit of a hoax. Now it's more common to hear we're doomed anyway, or the problem is so big, there's nothing that we as individuals can do. And it's almost like we skipped right over the part where we just recognized that climate change was real and went to an entirely different kind of denial, one that says now climate action doesn't matter. But in the end, the impact is the same. Whether you believe climate change isn't real or you believe there's nothing we can do about it, both stories are disempowering and lead to not taking action, which is the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. Yeah, and that's really where hope comes in too. Uh, when climate news becomes overwhelming, Hope is something that can really keep us from feeling paralyzed. And you're right, there are all sorts of climate solutions out there that can make a difference, but doing nothing is not one of them. Yeah, climate solutions that can make a difference and are. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, that is not to say that being overwhelmed is not a valid feeling. Uh, we all feel that way from time to time. I know Jane and you and I have talked about feeling that way. It is a legitimate response to the kinds of dire warnings and growing urgency around climate news. But the thing we all need to be able to do is to take that information in 
recognize what's at stake, and then find a way to do the work we know needs to be done. In fact, I think now actually would be a good time to go to the Q&A box. Um, sometimes I find it just very helpful to begin by naming our fears. And that way, instead of lurking around in the back of our minds saying, yes, but, you know, as we talk about solutions, we can air those fears out and then move toward a more productive place. So let me just ask, for those of you listening in, what's a climate change fear you have? What is something that maybe keeps you up at night? And while folks are, who are listening in are putting some of their concerns in the Q&A, Jane, I'll ask you the same question because fair is fair. Yeah, fear. Uh, so, well, this is something that you and I talk about frequently, and I know probably a lot of the people on this call do as well, something that's really close to home, severe weather. Uh, and I'm not necessarily talking, you know, wildfires and hurricanes that maybe aren't happening here in Iowa. I'm talking things like the derecho and tornadoes and severe thunderstorms, um, which, as we know, can cause a lot of a lot of issues, including safety issues for um, our residents and citizens. So for me, I think it's the severity you know, increased intensity and increased frequency of severe weather. I totally get that. Yeah. Hmm. How about um, you, Sarah, or are we getting some good ones in? Um, we've got just one person who's in, so maybe we'll give just a little more time in case others want to weigh in. Oh, here they come. Sure. Um, you know, I'll say a bit, I'm right there with you, Jane. I know you and I have talked about uh, over December, I was actually in Colorado when those wildfires broke out after Christmas. And um, what wasn't talked a lot about in the news cycle then was they were actually, the, what started that was a derecho in Colorado. And driving through that really made me think about the derecho we had here in Iowa and how lucky we were that nothing ignited in the middle of it. So it's those compounding stresses on the environment, I think that um, feel scary to me. Um, and yeah, I think understandably so. Well, it looks like when we look at the fears that are coming in, so um, John writes that his fear is that this generation of high school and college students are losing hope and as a result facing all sorts of mental health challenges that are associated with hopelessness. I can, I can certainly sympathize with that, John. I know from our climate ambassador trainings, um, we've had climate ambassadors talk about that, about um, just being overwhelmed by the climate news and feeling a, a great sense of hopelessness, um, which is part of, I think, what inspired this discussion. Um, there's a concern from Carol John that can, big CO2 production won't be halted before it's late and what the little common people can do won't be enough. Um, and I know that's something else, of course, that we've talked about. Like, I will say this is one of the areas I, I do feel a bit more hopeful than I did even 10 years ago because, you know, 10 years ago, we really hadn't seen emissions come down in any meaningful sector. Um, and now they've started to, which is really great. But um, that feeling of what individual people can do versus you know, the scale of the uh, crisis we're up against, I know is something that Jane and I hope to talk about today um, because I think those are real fears as well. And then uh, worried about places being uninhabitable because of climate change. I, I can definitely say that that's a fear that lots of people share, including ourselves as well, that um, you know, not just that um, places will be uninhabitable, but also the kinds of pressures that's gonna put on geopolitical systems when people start migrating away, um, as they already are, frankly, from these uh, situ or places that are becoming uninhabitable. So I, I, those are real and legitimate fears. 
Um, and I wanna be very clear that nothing we're gonna say today is meant to delegitimize those, um, but rather maybe to put them into a broader context of this is what we're up against, this is the progress we're making, and here's where they're gonna come together possibly for a better future. So great, great fears. Hey, Sarah, I think we got one in the chat too. So one is, I have a fear for all the people, especially in third world, who do not have enough food or water due to climate change. And to be honest, that maybe could get worse, right? Um, and who live on coasts which are disappearing and will have no place to live. Absolutely. That's, that's a very good one. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for catching that, Jane. Yeah, no problem. Um, you know, and I'll say these are all things that are frequently on my mind, and I know yours too, Jane, but I will say that is one of the reasons why I think it is such an incredible privilege to serve Iowa City in the roles that you and I do, because every day while I'm thinking about these things, I'm also coming into City Hall and I'm working out the details on the next action we're going to take and the one after that. And, you know, we get to work with city staff in so many different departments who care about these issues and are working very hard on solutions too, like buying those electric buses that you see out on the streets now or putting geothermal heating in the animal shelter. You know, I always say one of the best ways to feel like a better future is possible is to roll up your sleeves and be part of making it happen. And that's what we get to do. Yeah. Sarah, and I'll, I'll add to, we have one additional uh, comment from Joan. Uh, frustration with everything that is non-recyclable plastic, clamshells, styrofoam, some plastic bag or film types. Uh, Joan, as you know, we are with you on that. Uh, and we're coming up with, we're trying to come up with solutions for this really, really big issue, right? Um, and that really leads to my next point. Action most certainly is the best antidote for despair. You know, and that's something we really need to keep in mind. Uh, it gets to another thing that I know, Sarah, you and I sometimes talk about too. When we refer to hope, we're not talking about some unfounded wishful thinking um, that you embrace simply for the sake of not feeling bad, right? Um, we're talking about a legitimate response to real world solutions that are gaining momentum um, and also the role that each of us can play in moving those solutions forward. Uh, hope is just as valid of a feeling as concern or distresses. It's just that sometimes I think the news items um, of climate solutions sometimes get drowned out by all the negative or bad news uh, related to climate that really is communicating all the things that we're up against, just like what we've talked about, the wildfires, the hurricanes, droughts, floods, etc. Yeah, you know, and I want to say that I am grateful that those things are getting covered and they're getting connected to climate change because it wasn't all that long ago that that was not the story, the dominant story in news sources. So in a way, um, even those stories that may make us feel that kind of impending doom are a kind of progress that's being made. But those other stories that we equally need to hear about the progress being made, just sometimes you're right, get drowned out or even lost. You know, up against something like a wildfire, which is a big and dramatic story, it's hard for another story about progress in battery technology to be as attention grabbing. But those stories are out there just as frequently and they really are exciting. 
you know, that's part of the reason why you and I, Jane, created Project 51 last year to help lift up some of those stories about those solutions that are gaining momentum that might, for very understandable reasons, just get lost in the daily news cycle. And, you know, we need both the good and the bad in climate news. Yeah. Oh, Sarah, you know how much I love Project 51. Uh, for, for those of you that are maybe unfamiliar, so Project 51 is something that Sarah and I designed last year, and it was in celebration of the 51st Earth Day. And really what it's meant to do is share 51 and beyond at this point, uh, different causes for hope related to the climate. So the goal with this is really to have something for everybody, different learning styles, um, how different, uh, how people approach information differently, right? So it's anything from news articles to uh, statistics, tech advancements, art, poems, podcasts, opportunities to act and, and engage, really a mix of lots of different things. And for those of you that maybe have not uh, heard of Project 51 or engaged with it before, we absolutely encourage you to check that out. It's at the city website, icgov.org slash Project 51. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing is, once we got into the habit of looking for those positive developments on the climate front, it just became second nature to keep sharing them whenever we came across them. You yeah. know, after all, as we said, we all need a little good news now and then. So Jane and I ended up keeping it up and adding a this just in section where we could put the most recent items. And I want to give credit as well to our excellent colleague, Zach Berg, who manages the social media accounts for the city. He's great about finding good stories for Project 51. He actually just sent me one this morning. Mm -hmm. um, so it gets updated regularly. And now, as Jane said, there are way more than 51 reasons on that web page. You know, at some point, I think we're going to have to think about renaming it. That's probably a good problem to have though, right? <laughs> um, so one of my favorites that I have to share with you, Sarah, I know you're already aware of it, but I'll share it with our audience members today, is under the For the Inspired section on the Project 51 webpage. It's a quote from the author and podcaster, John Green, and it says, we must fight like there is something to fight for, like we are something worth fighting for because we are which I just, I think that's a great quote. Sarah, do you have any tidbits from Project 51 that you want to share with the group today? Oh, yeah. I, and, you know, I know exactly the podcast episode you're referring to from the Anthropocene Reviewed. So mm -hmm. great. Um, I go back and listen to it time to time myself. There's also a great quote on uh, Project 51 page about falling in love with the creativity of the solutions for um, that came from a climate justice advocate named Mary Aeneas Helger. Um, and I think that's very true and really resonates with me in the work that we do, that there are a lot of really creative solutions and being in love with them is another kind of response to the things we see going on in the world today. Are there other things, I'm curious now, Jane, that you remember from that project? 51 and beyond is a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think, and, you know, again, we may have a lot of attendees that are already aware that this is going on, but I, I love this one too, a local data piece of when we started Project 51, Iowa City was projected to either meet or exceed its greenhouse gas reduction goal of 45% by 2030. And then a few months after starting Project 51, we did just that. We achieved that goal. Um, the reduction of about 681,000 tons of emissions annually, that's a huge step uh, in the right direction towards achieving that net zero by 2050 that we're working towards. 
Um, one other thing too, I'm thinking of Sarah, wasn't there, you just told me about another record-breaking stat in Iowa City about electric vehicle users uh, in charging stations and Iowa City parking ramps, something about 160 unique users per month. Do I have that right? Yeah, you do. We, um, we basically, we just keep breaking our record, which means there are more and more EV drivers in Iowa City mm -hmm. using our uh, parking ramp chargers. You know, I actually keep meaning to add that to the Project 51 page, but then we keep breaking the record again. Um, you know, I'll say too, one of the Project 51 items that really stuck out to me when we were putting that list together was learning that here in Iowa, we essentially built one and a half wind turbines every day in 2020. Um, and I can say as someone who actually had the chance to climb to one of those turbines up to the nacelle and stand on top, I can tell you they're so much bigger than we imagined. Many of them are taller than the Statue of Liberty. And the fact that we built so many of them, one and a half Statues of Liberty a day, even in the heart of the pandemic, is an amazing engineering accomplishment. It actually makes me think of an article that you and I were talking about just last week, Jane, about the recent report from the United Nations. And I'm guessing many people listening in saw a bit of this as well. You know, it said quite clearly globally, we really have to ramp up our efforts to reduce emissions if we want to avoid the very worst outcomes of climate change. But it also said, and I quote, clean energy technology has advanced far more rapidly than expected. An example they gave was the cost of wind turbines, which is now less than half of what it was just 10 years ago. Gosh, that's really an amazing number, my goodness. Uh, that's that article too. That's a great example of what we've been talking about. Even in an article that has some pretty important warnings of time running out, uh, there are success stories that show that it can be done. So I think this is also a good time. Uh, we'll go back into the Q and A. We've talked about so far with our attendees. You know, what are the things that worry us? Now we want to ask all of you, what are the things that give us hope? And maybe for some of you that are engaged with Project 51, maybe there's some things from Project 51 uh, or others. Um, anything that gives you hope in this whole conversation of climate, please feel free to share them with us in the chat or Q&A and we'll, uh, we'll bring them to the discussion. Oh, I love it. Let's see what others are thinking or steps in the right direction. You know, and if it's not from Project 51, all the better. Maybe you all will give us something else to add to that page. That would be exciting. Oh yeah. We're always looking for more content. And I think with that too, uh, a shout out that if any of you do have things like that at any point beyond this discussion that you want to share with us and um, we can consider for Project 51, please feel free to reach out to Sarah or I. We're happy to, to talk about those. So Sarah, as things start to roll in, um, do you in particular have something that gives you hope? Oh, there's so many things that give me hope. You know, um, we talked about the falling cost of wind turbines. Solar uh, has also fallen very rapidly, mm -hmm. um, which has been great. Um, and I think you see like just an increased importance put on this topic. Like I can, I, I've been in climate work long enough to remember um, sort of feeling like the crazy person in the room talking about it. And now that's no longer the case. There are so many more people involved in the conversation. And what that means is there are so many more creative minds really working toward the solution and so many solutions popping up that it's, uh, I think it's, 
you know, it's both a, a daunting time to work in climate, but also an incredibly inspiring time. We have so many more tools now even than we did, you know, just 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, it looks like we're getting a couple things in the Q&A. I'm talking about kids involved in the climate strike movement, even in Iowa at the Capitol. Like, yes, definitely. You know, the youth movement has brought so much energy to the climate fight. Um, and it looks like it looks like this is a shared response that I have hope. Um, Carol John says, when I think of younger generations living with less and making recycling and composting a regular part of their life, and also groups of countries such as the EU working together to set goals for reduction. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great common theme about working together. Um, and then John says, younger people seem more easily able to adapt to smart choices in their lives. Um, and he smiles whenever he gets called out by a student, such as being asked to turn off the van while waiting for a student. That Yeah, that sort of fearlessness to call each other to action is great. Um, and then even folks falling in love with the soil, you know, um, that's a great one to highlight too. We just, uh, as you may recall, during Climate Fest last year, painted our first climate action mural. And I really loved that the winning design that was submitted um, was a focus on the role that healthy soils and composting can play. You know, I, it, I don't think you can think of many things that are much more humble than dirt. Um, and I know that people who advocate for increasing carbon in the soil very consciously don't use the term dirt. We talk about soil. But yeah. just to think that, you know, that's where it is in everybody, everyday imagination and like that people are really engaging with it and thinking of it as a solution. Um, and a solution that I think really can be forwarded in a very meaningful way here in Iowa. I think that's exciting. Um, oh, Leslie, I am with you here. More choices for plant-based meat. So meat substitutes, you know, um, I think it wasn't that long ago that when you went to a restaurant and you looked for a vegetarian option, um, a lot of times what you were offered was like a not very appetizing um, veggie burger that was made out of like oatmeal and some other unidentifiable stuff. And like now there's so many different options and they're so delicious. And I think a really important shift has happened there where it's not just vegetarians um, who are exercising those options, but really these meat substitutes are being eaten by people who maybe aren't vegetarians every single day of the week, you know, but they go out to the restaurant and it feels like a good and valid option that they can incorporate into their diet. And I know we talked about this in a previous speaking of that everybody um, reducing their meat consumption just a little has actually um, a, a larger measurable impact on greenhouse gas reductions than um, just a few people trying to be very intensely vegan. So that's amazing. Oh, and Joan's written in with something great about how at the end of April, 100 grannies will celebrate 10 years of activism, educating, annual lecture series, friend to friend generating our growth. <laughs> she also loves her compost. So yeah, great examples of how the 10 years of that work is really paying off here in the community. Um, and oh, a great question. Um, we actually may save that a little, well, no, we can answer it now. There's a question from Tony about adding compost to the lawns, um, asking where in Iowa City would one find a compost spreader for our lawns? That may be a little more in your wheelhouse than mine, Jane. Do you have a, a quick answer for that one? I would say check with the hardware stores. You go to the local Ace um, and, and just talk to one of the staff there. They should be able to help you. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, and that's probably actually a good moment also to give a nod to the Your Best Lawn program through Iowa City, which is, um, you can you can look it up on our website if you go to icgov.org in the search bar and enter Your Best Lawn. We actually do have a grant program that um, helps pay half the cost of bringing in someone to aerate your lawn and add compost to it to top dress it. Um, as a way of helping increase the organic matter in the soil. And that really does a couple of different things that are really beneficial from a climate action perspective. Um, one, it, as we were talking about, it adds carbon to the soil. So it is a very small sequestration effort. But beyond that, having more compost in your soil just increases the holding capacity of your lawn during intense rain events. And as we know, that is one of the projected impacts of climate change for our area that we're going to have more intense and more frequent storms. So getting that compost worked into your lawn actually can help the uh, water infiltrate downward rather than just running straight off into the streets. Um, so it's a great little thing to do. And I think the city is quite happy to help pay for some of those costs. Yeah, I, stability is a big thing there too. Infiltration and soil subsurface stability. So lots of benefits there. Absolutely. You know, one of the things you may or may not know, Jane and I both have a connection to Davenport, Iowa. And one of the things you see in extreme storm conditions there are people's lawns literally sliding off into the street. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Jane, but I know in the neighborhood that I used to live in, um, it would sort of look like grassy pudding that had just poured down into the street. Yeah. So anything you can do to increase that holding capacity, you're right, not just for the water, but the lawn itself is really great. Uh, I love this one from Monica too in our chat. We've got our granddaughter praising us about wrapping her birthday gift in newspaper. She gives us gifts she makes from recycled materials. That is very cool. Yes, that's a good one. Uh, I think we, oh, we've got one more from Joan saying that she loves us for fueling our, for fueling her energy, which I will reciprocate back to Joan because we love you as well. And, uh, we're here because of all of you, uh, really being such great support to the programs that we do. So thank you. That is absolutely the case. You know, this is all great. And one of the other things that the article said that we were referencing before um, about the UN um, targets and the closing window to meet them was that even if we don't succeed in limiting warning to that or limiting warning to that United Nations target, mm -hmm. um, these actions still matter because every fraction of a degree matters. You know, and I think that's something that um, I think about all the time too. It's not like if we don't meet that target, the world just immediately ends. The world gets tougher and it gets tougher with each fraction of a degree we go over that. But, you know, we don't live in a perfect world now. And the imperfect world we're all inhabiting at this moment right now is still worth fighting for and will continue to be worth fighting for in the future. So it's helpful to remember that every emissions reduction reduces some of the peril we face. Every emissions reduction matters. And we've had some real victories on that front. It's true. And Sarah, it makes me think of something else that we often talk about and we've talked about in a lot of past speaking of. We have to be realistic with climate action. So, you know, recognizing limits, sure, that is important, but I think we also need to recognize what is possible in the grand scheme of things. 
Um, in an earlier speaking of, we said a quote that I'm going to repeat here because I think uh, it is something that fits very well into this hope discussion. So the quote itself is, no one can do everything, not everything works for everyone, but we can all do something. And we really have to hold on to that last piece that we can all do something in our sights because it's all those things that we can do that really add up into that collective action impact. Right, you know, and the things that we can do like advancing wind technology also become stepping stones to the things we're still figuring out like utility scale battery storage. Yeah. You know, I think actually, Jane, this is where a little confession might be useful, if I may. Um, <laughs> in all honesty, I am not actually an optimistic person by nature. And this is probably why I have thought a lot about this topic, because I have had to work at it. Yeah. I am very much someone who needs to see the data. You know, I want to know the size of the sample set. I want to know how the question or the numbers were crunched. I want to ask tough questions before I embrace a truly hopeful viewpoint. Um, you know, in fact, bear with me. Among the many jobs I have had on this earth was working as a lifeguard in college. And I'm going to tell you how this relates. Um, I don't think they do this anymore, but one of the things they trained us to do back then was to tell people to go get towels after you pulled a drowning victim from the pool. And the thing was, you didn't actually need the towels. They weren't very useful. It was just a way to keep people occupied until the paramedics arrived. And early on in my climate career, I can say when, you know, the climate impacts just seem so big and they continue to, and the solutions at the time seem so puny, I often wondered, you know, is this just telling people to go get towels? It was actually one of my like big fears. But one of the great things about working on climate solutions for as long as you and I have is that I can really see now how all those different climate actions and innovations that we were really just talking about 20 years ago have really moved forward. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I, I really like that example. I think it's a good parallel. Uh, you know, this is sort of like if we think about changing light bulbs, right? Um, it feels like nothing that can stand in the way of polar ice caps. Sure, it isn't if you're the only one changing your light bulbs to LEDs, right? Um, but together, all those changed light bulbs, all those other energy efficiency measures that um, each and every one of us are taking part in, they've got a greater uh, climate impact in terms of reducing emissions and this is what's really surprising, than all the wind, solar, geothermal systems that we have thus far. And, you know, Sarah, this is something that you taught me, that, that stat, and it's something that's really underreported. I'm sure we have some folks on the line today that are, are pretty shocked by that stat. Um, the other thing to mention, too, is all these other clean energy advancements that are taking off in ways that we never could have imagined. Again, just you know, way faster than what we had expected, similar to what we shared last month and also with the stat on the charging stations for electric vehicles. Uh, we've seen a huge increase in electric vehicle adoption, um, much more than we ever could have anticipated even just five years ago. So, you know, very good things happening at a fast rate. Um, it's hard to stay skeptical when you see the truly wide range of progress that is being made. Um, so I think with that, let's take it back to the Q&A for a moment here. Uh, another important question to ask our attendees, um, sometimes things can feel like they are too good to be true. And again, an important 
angle to have here in this discussion of hope. So we want to ask today, uh, what are some questions that you might have about climate solutions that might have you suspicious that they're greenwashing or too far-fetched? Um, why don't we have anyone that has a question or a concern related to that um, or you know, a suspicion related to that, type those right into the Q&A or chat and we can address those. Well, I love that you're asking this, Jane. I feel like this will be a real challenge for us because we should be clear, Jane and I don't have all the answers, but just like with other Q&As in um, other speaking outs, if we don't have a satisfying answer, we will continue to look it up after the discussion and we can always follow up with you via email. But I know there are things out there that feel too good to be true. Oh, and it looks like we've got one, carbon capture and sequestration. Um, yeah. And there's a question about obtaining compost. Why don't we why don't we start there, Jane? Because I know you've got a quick and easy answer to that, and I will gear up for asking about carbon capture and sequestration. Yeah. Uh, so often, free compost is available at the Restore on Scott Boulevard. Um, so that you know that is something that we do have right now. It is uh, there's a small fee for it though. It is fifty cents per five gallon bucket. Um, that's I guess is that that's not far-fetched or greenwashing though. So I guess I'm not sure, Sarah. I think it's an answer to a question Tony put up earlier about does um, Iowa City provide access to obtain compost? And the reason I'll say Tony, I pitched this question to Jane is because uh, that access point's like right outside her office. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I'm sorry. I I thought we were getting back to the question. I'm like, what do you mean? This is the reality. We have compost <laughs> at Eastside. Um, yes, yes, we do. And then also, uh, let's see, the other question was access to obtain compost and where's a site. The other thing I'll mention with that too, and thank you, Joan, for putting that in there. So if Eastside's more convenient, we do have that in small batch. If you want a large supply of compost, you can also go directly out to the compost facility, which is located at the Iowa City landfill, west end of town, $20 a ton for compost, um, which can get you quite a lot of compost um, for, for just $20. So again, just depends how much you need. Yeah. So what I can say about carbon capture and sequestration, and you can feel free to jump in, Jane, is that um, it is an important piece of the puzzle in terms of long-term strategies. You know, one of the things we talk about is the uh, net in net zero that the city is aiming for recognizes that in reality, you're probably never, at least with the technology we have now, never going to be able to totally zero out emissions. You're always going to be admitting just a little something, you know, even if just a handful of homes still have, for example, wood burning stoves, like there's a little bit of emissions associated with that. And so to get to net zero, what you need is something that is going to pull some of that carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into the ground. Um, in truth, this technology has not advanced as much as uh, clean energy has, for example. So there's still a ways to go with it. Um, but there are a lot of people taking a really close look at the technology. And I think we're going to see the kinds of adva advancements in it, you know, 10 or 15 years down the road that we've seen in clean energy up to now. Um, one of the interesting things, Iowa City actually last year went through a planning process with a couple other communities, Columbia, Missouri, Lincoln, Nebraska, and Boulder, Colorado. We all worked together to map out where the existing carbon sinks already were in our communities and to kind of think about what do we need to be putting in place to get to net zero? Like, what do we need to be doing now? And part of the reason we did that, it sounds like a funny thing to say, 
But right now, some of the best carbon ca capture technology we have are trees and prairie plantings. Actually, you know, this is something I love living in a prairie state like Iowa. Um, you actually get more bang for your buck in terms of carbon capture and storage from prairie than you do from trees. And that's because when trees uh, store carbon, it sort of is all up in the canopy and the leaves. And then those leaves, you know, come down in annual cycles and can be washed away. They don't necessarily, all those new carbon nutrients go, carbon and nutrients, I should say, go back down into the ground. But with prairie plantings and grasses, the carbon is all stored in the root system and that stays in place. So things like adding prairie to um, city parks in Iowa City actually are um, some of our first early efforts in carbon sequestration and storage. But I will say, Mary Beth, you are right to be a little skeptical of some of the carbon capture technology that's out there, not all of it. Um, I know there's been a lot of discussion in Iowa recently about the carbon pipeline or carbon storage pipelines that have been proposed. And it's probably too big of a discussion to try to squeeze into this one here. Um, but I'll say, you know, some of the legitimate concerns that come out of that involve what we've seen with other carbon capture pipelines. And that is, you know, what happens to that carbon at the end? Is it being really truly put in the ground to stay there forever? Or is it being used to, you know, extract other <laughs> carbon sources? out so that you know you're not really storing things you're just moving carbon around um, and I think those are meaningful conversations to have and things we're going to have to wrestle with but I will say um, each little development helps push us further along and so to get to where we need to be um, to get to true carbon sequestration from a mechanical standpoint not a trees and prairies standpoint but a mechanical standpoint there are some emerging technologies that aren't perfect Mm -hmm. um, but that are important to explore. And I know this is something Jane and I talk about um, that you see sometimes in climate discussions is that, you know, we do have a tendency sometimes to let perfect be the enemy of good. And you see this like whenever any new technology pops up, right? If you look at discussions, for example, of like large solar arrays, you know, there are questions about the resources that are extracted to create those solar arrays um, as a way of saying, you know, it's not perfect, it doesn't have zero impact on the earth. And that's true. But what gets lost, I think, so often in those discussions is that there's mining operations involved with the alternatives too. you know, there's mining that's involved with maintaining, for example, coal fire plants or natural gas plants, um, as opposed to solar arrays. And so I think it's really important whenever we have those kinds of questions to put them into context and say, you know, if we don't pursue this technology, what's the technology that's gonna fill this role in its place? And what do those impacts look like in comparison? I think when we do that, we're able to have, I think a really thoughtful and meaningful discussion about what our best alternatives are for now, recognizing they may not be perfect, but they're getting us down the road to where we need to go. So that was a long, long answer. Um, let's see, Jane, do you wanna talk about, let's see, do you wanna tackle one of these? Uh, well, I'll, I'll cover this one that's real quick from Dell in the chat. So he mentions ethanol in Iowa's ag economy as a climate positive. That's a great example. I know there's, there's a lot of uh, discussion and concerns related to that in our state. So thank you, Dell. Okay, and then we've got 
this is not exactly on your topic, but can you tell the latest about turning off your call car while waiting? So it used to be if you were waiting less than a minute, you used more gas restarting the car than just leaving it running. Uh, I know some cities have, you know, idling policies, and oftentimes I feel like five minutes is usually the sweet spot, at least from uh, a municipality in in Colorado that I worked for. But Sarah, where are we at with this? Because my my knowledge of this is really about five or six years old at this point. You know, I actually looked this up because I used to have a commute that involved waiting at train tracks, and I always wondered, like while waiting for a train to go by, should I turn my car off? Um, and actually the answer is really surprising. It's about eight seconds. If you're gonna sit longer than eight seconds, you know, waiting for something like a train to go by, it is better to turn your car off in that instance. And you know, where this especially, I think is really powerful to know is like at schools while waiting to pick kids up because that has benefits, not just in the long-term in terms of carbon emissions, but if you think about all those vehicles idling around a school, you know, children have young and more tender lungs than we do as adults. And so the impacts of things like particulate matter, sometimes you'll hear people talk about PM 2.5, um, you know, when the impacts on the lungs, when it gets inhaled, those impacts are bigger for young lungs than they are for older lungs. So anything we can do to be turning off cars not only helps with the climate, but it also actually helps with public health. And this is one of the reasons um, it's not just a uh, former city used to work with Jane. Uh, Iowa City actually has an anti-idling policy for our city vehicles where, um, you know, all those big trucks you see around going around town uh, doing things like repairing our streets or picking up our garbage. Um, those all are regulated by a policy in the city that says if you're stopped somewhere, the vehicle needs to be turned off both to save on fuel, to reduce emissions, and to help mitigate some of those health impacts to our community members. So it's a great question to ask about. Now, here's the little twist in that plot. You know, I mentioned several years ago, looking up the statistic, because I found myself waiting on trains a lot. Um, what you actually see now with vehicles on the market, and this isn't just electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles, um, maybe you've experienced this standing at a corner. A lot of vehicles now actually are built to kind of idle back when they're at a stop sign. And so sometimes um, I'll notice while I'm waiting for the bus, I'll hear vehicles pull to the corner and you can hear the car turn itself off and then turn back on again. Actually, what you hear is it turning back on again. <laughs> you don't notice it turning off so much. And that's because even car manufacturers recognize that there's real efficiency gains to be made um, from just building in that kind of technology to cars. So the biggest answer I would say is actually to go and look at the driver's manual for the vehicle you drive, because it is entirely possible that the vehicle you drive has already been engineered to address this exact issue. But I have to say, I love this question. I love it because it just shows like these little actions that add up, right? Like if all of us just for a minute thought about turning off our car when we're waiting for more than eight seconds somewhere, like what a difference that can make. Yeah, um, I have to tell you real quick, Sarah. So when I was working out in Aspen, the, I, I believe the idling rule back in like 2015 was about five minutes, was if you were sitting longer than five minutes, you had to have your engine off. And so we had an idling initiative where we would have our staff members, including myself, go out and kind of awkwardly like look for drivers that were sitting in their cars for longer than five minutes 
And we would go up to the window and hand them a free cookie card and say, hey, just wanted to let you know about the idling policy. Uh, if you could turn your car off, if you're sitting for longer than five minutes, that'd be great. Uh, and to sort of make the conversation a little bit easier, that's when the free cookie card would come in handy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm looking through these. Uh, we've got liquid CO2 goes to enhanced oil removal. Uh, keep the fossil fuel in the ground. Okay. Anything, anything to add to that, Sarah? No, I think that goes exactly to what we were talking about, about some of those tough questions about carbon capture. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just worth noting, not all carbon capture is the same, you know, so um, we actually have been working with Big Grove Brewery, um, who's been looking at carbon capture for their process, where they would catch the car or capture the carbon that's coming off of the um, brewing process and use it to carbonate the beer, which on the one hand, um, sort of is another example where we were talking about, about moving carbon around, right? Like um, when we were talking about this project, I said, you know, at the end of the day, the, the yeast burp out that carbon and then we can put it back in the beer and, and then we burp it out. So at the end of the day, that carbon still is getting released, but, and this is where I think it really is meaningful, um, if they weren't capturing or looking at technology to capture that carbon and use it in site, they have to, and this is what they do currently, is bring carbon dioxide in from other locations. Actually, we know that they're bringing it in from the Quad Cities, um, mm -hmm. and they're getting delivery several times a month. And so now on top of that carbon coming into town, you've got, um, you've got the emissions associated with transporting it, you know, in a, in a diesel-fueled vehicle all the way here. So by using carbon capture in this specific process, in this specific way, we're actually going to be able, I think, to help reduce transportation emissions, which has been a really interesting project, project for us to take a look at and try to calculate what those benefits are. Yeah. Um, I see that Carol John also has a story about tilling fields. And Carol, please forgive me if your name is actually pronounced Carol Jean. I had a grandmother who pronounced it both ways, so I'm never quite sure. Um, but asks about tilling of fields and its effect and about soil depletion. Where is the hope? Um, and, you know, it's true, we have lost a lot of topsoil. So a lot of the soil that was already doing that carbon storage work for us has been eroded over many years of farming practices that really weren't designed so much to retain carbon in the soil as they were to maximize yield. So in some ways, we're starting behind the eight ball on that one. But, um, and I will say this is a little outside the scope of what we look at as city employees. There's not a lot of tilling that happens within city jurisdiction. Um, but I can say that if you look at studies about um, embracing different kinds of agricultural processes, like just planting cover crops and introducing rotational grazing, that um, when you do that, the turnaround on the health of those soils is pretty dramatic. And I would say faster than I would intuitively imagine it to be. You know, I would imagine that we've been eroding soil for decades, if not centuries, um, basically ever since the invention of the self-scouring plow. Um, but thinking about that, it would make me feel like, well, probably it's going to take another century to reverse it. And in terms of really building up those soils again to where they were, yeah, that is going to take time. But um, you can see organic matter in, almost immediately 
uh, start infiltrating into the soil. You can see roots penetrating more deeply. You can see earthworms returning within about a year of adopting these agricultural processes, which says to me, it's not gonna be an immediate solution, but very clearly it is a solution that if we continue to pursue it year over year, will add up the way it added up over centuries before. So there's some hope there. Uh, we just, like so many things with climate action, we just have to get the ball moving and start building that momentum. So thanks for the wonderful question. Yeah, that's great, Sarah. And I think we've got a few other questions building, which we're, we'll hold for the Q&A, but the last one I'll name for, I think the question we asked about greenwashing, far-fetched, um, and anything anybody wants to put in here would be uh, rechargeable batteries and solar panels. They contain dangerous chemicals and plastics. Are they still better? I, I think that's a great question. You know, absolutely, there's precious metals and other things in those devices for them to work properly. Um, I can certainly talk about the diversion end of that, but first, Sarah, would you like to say anything from, from the climate realm on that note? Um, I would say unequivocally, they are better. If we look at, and this is, goes right back to what I was saying before about it's important to consider them in the context of what we'd be using in their place, right? So if you've got solar panels, it, I, I would argue they don't contain so many dangerous chemicals. They do have some mineral and metal content that would be problematic if it were in the groundwater. But the way those batteries and solar panels are designed, you know, actually, it's a great question to ask together because all the solar panel really is is a battery turned inside out, essentially. So very similar um, in terms of the engineering components. Um, when you look at how they're designed, those mi minerals and the heavy metal content are really, they stay within the solar panel and they stay within the battery unless there's some sort of catastrophic failure, mm -hmm. right? So in terms of worrying about the immediate impact on groundwater or the surrounding soils, they're pretty benign. Um, when they reach their end of use life, they do, it would be, it is important to recycle them, you know, because reusing those mineral contents, revitalizing those components is going to have a lower energy cost than remanufacturing them new, going back and digging more stuff out of the ground to use. But um, it goes back to what I was saying about compare that to something like a coal fire plant and the actual impacts of coal fire plants where you get things like coal ash that isn't contained just within the plant, that goes outside, that has real contaminating effects for the surrounding area. So if the choice is between a solar panel or even utility scale battery storage, which I hope we get to very soon, um, as opposed to maintaining the alternative, because we're gonna have to do something to keep the grid going, mm -hmm. unequivocally, solar panels and batteries are the better choice. Yeah, from the diversion end to a simple way to think of it too is with coal, can you reuse it? No, you can't reclaim it and divert it. Uh, if we look at a lot of the ingredients to make a, you know, to engineer a solar panel or to engineer a rechargeable battery, a lot of those can actually be reclaimed and reused uh, in other technology or in new solar panels or in new batteries, which is great. So yes, there is of course, uh, some impact on the front end in terms of uh, access to those materials, but there's a lot of diversion potential there too. That is such an excellent point. I'm so glad. All right, we've got a couple others, but let's jump in and there are a couple other points we want to make and then we have, if we have a little time, we'll yeah. circle back. Does that sound good? Perfect. Let's do it. 
Okay, so, um, you know, where we left off where you were asking about things that are good, too good to be true. And I'd say that maybe because there isn't one big solution that's going to solve everything, that is what makes it easy to lose track of the many different things that are going to be solutions or easy to get bogged down in these weeds of, well, is this as good as it sounds, right? Because we all want like the one clear answer that's going to take care of everything. And that's just not how climate action works, um, partly because that's not how we got here. There's not just one big thing that drove up emissions. It was, you know, many different things occurring over, you know, more than one century. But um, when you look at the solutions taking shape, they are as diverse as the problems that we're seeking to address. And that's one of the things that really gives me hope. You know, in fact, one of my favorite climate writers is someone named Eric Holthaus. And I should say, this is not the same Eric Holthaus who is the sustainable land manager in Cedar Rapids. Although I will say, I think that Eric Holthaus is pretty inspiring too. But Eric Holthaus, the climate journalist writes that when you know about all the solutions available to us, you realize we are alive at just the right moment to change everything. And I love that idea so much because I think it really reframes the moment we're in, right? We are in a moment, it's true, where um, there's a pressing need to act. We are up against some tough odds, but we are also, and this is equally true, alive at the right moment when all the solutions are taking shape that are going to enable us to change everything and change it for the better. It's one of the reasons that as part of their training for the climate ambassadors, we ask them to take a week to imagine what the better world would look like because, and this is so true, we can't just keep telling the story about how bad it will be if we do nothing. You know, the data is very clear that that doesn't motivate as many people as we need to take action. It's not as motivating as we would think. What we need to be telling is the story about what's exciting about the future that we can build with the tools we already have. And so I think, I think this is actually another great place to go to the Q&A once more and just ask, what does that future look like? Is it when you think of the better future and the things we could accomplish with these tools, are you seeing like more trees? Are you seeing more people walking to work and connecting with their neighbors along the way? Um, you know, something like solar panels on the wings of airplanes, like Maybe it's not possible now, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible in the future that those components aren't adding up. So um, I just really want to invite everybody listening in to take a moment and think to themselves, what excites you to see come true in the near future? And uh, share it with us, because I think that's an incredibly hopeful moment that we can all take with us. Sarah, while we're waiting for some of those responses to come in, I see we have one other question. Should we just address that now? Yeah. Okay. So I've got, if you plan to use a grill to cook, what is the best as far as the environment? That's, that's a fun question. What do you think, Sarah? <laughs> what I think is I would actually have to look that one up. That's a stumper. Yeah, um, that is. I, yeah. I'm with you. I, um, I, I have heard possibly that it's, sort of untreated natural wood charcoal, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. So um, Monica, congratulations for giving us the question. We don't have a ready answer to, um, but we are quite happy to do that research for you. That's one of the things we do when we get questions, not just in speaking of, but from the community in general, we love to look them up and try to get you a satisfying answer. So let us find out and yeah. you can expect an email from us on it in the near future. 
Yeah, those are my favorite questions too, Sarah, because they they keep us learning too. And that's what we're supposed to be doing in our own job. So thank you. Okay, so we've got unboxed groceries from Canada coming to Iowa City. I think that's a great vision of the future. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. I would love to see a future where we are able to use technology to quickly and clearly see the impact of our choices, perhaps a system similar to nutritional information on food, but related to, but related to carbon footprint and sustainability. What a cool vision. I really like that. You know, Jane and I have talked about something similar with recycling labeling, how it's getting a little better that it used to be, you know, you just had to look for the tiny arrows. And now if you see like how to recycle labels, there's information on it, like you can recycle the lid, but not the container or vice versa, things like that. That, And we've talked about how great it would be if in addition to the recycling information, there was information on the label that just talked about the environmental impact, because sometimes those things are quite different. So yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a healthy climate future would include fair wages across all sectors of work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's one of the things that gets to uh, what we were talking about, about, um, you know, cli addressing climate change isn't just an opportunity to address the kind of climate crisis we're up against, but climate has a way of making just very plain where all the other vulnerabilities in our society are. You know, we talk about this often that climate change amplifies those vulnerabilities. Another way of looking at it is to say it raises awareness of them. And if we do this work right, Right, We're, we'll be able not just to clean up the environment, but to address those other vulnerabilities as well, like you know unfair wages across uh, different sectors. Yeah, I also see in the chat here too, Sarah, uh, cleaner water, cleaner air. Mm -hmm. And then Monica said, thank you. <laughs> and Monica, it looks like Mary Beth wrote in talking about an electric grill that she says gets hot quickly and heats evenly, keeping cooking like out of the oven. It's fast and clean. I didn't even think about electric grills. What a great suggestion. I'm, yeah. I am looking forward to digging into this question. I can tell already there are going to yeah. be some exciting solutions in it. So wonderful. Thank you for those visions. It's really, you know, I'll say, I'll just share one that I often share now with our climate ambassadors when we talk about um, what a better future might look like. One of the things I talk about is uh, cell phones. And how just a few years ago, um, you know, the idea of just being able to take your phone with you anywhere and talk anywhere seemed kind of novel. And mm -hmm. now if you talk to members of like Gen Z about the old times in the 20th century when you had to make a phone call and how that involved, I mean, it sounds weird to say it now, but you know, yeah. not that long ago to call a friend meant going and into a specific room and standing near a specific wall and like, staring at that wall while you talked on the phone for 20 minutes and you really couldn't go anywhere or do anything else while you the were doing cord. it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And now we just take it for granted that we can go anywhere with cell phones and talk, you know, to anyone at any time. I actually think something very similar is coming, not to ride too hard on electric vehicles again a second month in a row, but um, I think it's going to be just as interesting in the future and seem just as weird to say, you know, in the past, when you wanted to put fuel in your car, you had to go to a specific part of the neighborhood and you had to stand outside no matter how hot or cold it was in all kinds of weather next to your car, smelling these weird fumes and just sort of waiting for your car to fill up instead of coming home at night, 
just plugging it into the wall, throwing your keys in a dish and not thinking about it again until the morning. Like that kind of convenience that we see with cell phones, I actually think is coming for vehicles. And I think that's something to be excited about. Yeah, definitely. So here we are at the top of the hour. <laughs> We've had another great discussion. You know, I have to say, we came to this discussion wanting to talk about hope and I am really feeling hopeful at the end of it but then I often do at the end of our speaking of sessions. And I think that's because all the great participation helps remind me how many people in Iowa City are committed to climate action and out there doing the work that needs to be done. And that includes talking to their neighbors about what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you, Sarah. It's a really good feeling. And you know, none of us can do this on our own, um, which, you know, we're all in this together and that's hope in itself. Um, because we always like to end with sharing some resources, I did want to check, Sarah, if there was anything we wanted to mention beyond Project 51. How about um, one that I know is coming up, the Energy Blitz? Oh, that is a good idea. You know, as we said earlier, one of the best ways to feel like a better future is possible is to get involved in making it happen. Mm -hmm. And we have a great opportunity coming up on Saturday, April 23rd. We're going to be going door to door in the Lucas Farms neighborhood, delivering energy saving kits and collecting used light bulbs and batteries. And there's still time to sign up as a volunteer for a morning or afternoon shift. And I'll say we will take all the help we can get. Um, if you want to reach out to me directly at sarah-gardner at iowa-city.org, I can send you the link to the volunteer sign up. We'd certainly love to have you join in. You know, and I also want to say, if you are struggling with climate anxiety, as we've said many times, that is 100% a real and valid experience too. And neither Jane nor I want to pretend that that is not or say that you shouldn't feel that way. Um, there are some great resources available through the All We Can Save project, including a directory of climate-aware mental health professionals that can help. And we'll include those links in the email we send out to everyone registered for this event along with the recording of the conversation itself. That sounds like a plan. And just to let everybody know on the call, uh, Sarah and I are gonna be taking a little break in May because of all the uh, kind of intense amount of talks, presentations and events we have for the rest of April. But we will be back in June with another speaking of discussion and we'll have some really fun ideas in the works for that. Yeah, you know, and in fact, we wanted to invite all of you to help us brainstorm a bit for future discussions. Like clearly from the discussion today, you've got great ideas of things that we could be looking into or talking about more. If you have a topic idea or a burning question about climate action or recycling that you'd love to hear discussed, please send it our way. As I said before, I can be reached at sarah-gardner, that's S-A-R-A-H-G-A-R-D-N-E-R, at iowa-city.org. And Jane can be reached at Jane, J-A-N-E-Wilch, W-I-L-C-H, at iowa-city.org. And of course, you can find our emails on Iowa City's website as well. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And we'd love to hear your suggestions for speaking of topics and uh, hope to get to them in the near future. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. We know it's a bit of an unusual topic, Hopefully you got as much out of it as we did talking about it. And I just want to wish each and every one of you a happy Earth Month. Oh, yes. Happy Earth Month to everyone. And thank you very much for the great discussion today. We'll see you next time.